Robert Picto, a broadcasting legend here in the Northwest. Robert, thank you for joining me. Oh, thank you for having me. And, you know, we got the fancy studio here, you know. So, you're here in Northwestern British Columbia, mm-hmm. but you haven't always been here. Where did it all begin? Okay, I grew up in a tiny little town called Fort Fairfield, Maine. And if you kind of look at the map of Maine, on the eastern side, there's a flat side. And that is a whole big debate what happened there. That goes back to the canadian u.s war that had happened and so to settle it they just basically pull out a map took the ruler and put a straight line down and because of where that pencil went down is why i grew up i guess in the united states but my people are Mi'kmaq or micmac so our territory is northern maine new brunswick nova scotia and prince island so we kind of cross that border back and forth right, anyway right. in this tiny little town it was kind of interesting because there was not enough people to actually make a whole town in here, I guess you would see it's a, a township, unrecognized township, I think they call it, or so, something like that, or right. unorganized. Yeah, yeah, unincorporated. Yeah. yeah, and so it was like that, but what they did is they said, hey, there's another one right beside us, and we joined forces, we can become a town. Woo! <laughs> so it was kind of interesting because uh, it was um, an area that, normally that area is 32 square miles, but we were 72 square miles, which is the same size as New York City. Wow. Not as many people, though. Not even close as many people. What what was happening is, this is, I, I grew up in the 60s, born in the 60s, early 60s, and um, our, because they kind of gathered them all around, in my class, we had 120 students. Wow. <laughs> You're lucky to see those numbers uh, here, any of the graduating classes oh, yeah? in the area, so mm-hmm. that's, wow, <laughs> that's a big graduating mm-hmm. class. Why did you come to Canada? It's a long route, I guess you could say. It all started uh, going back, growing up, I grew up as migrant farm workers. And so I was out working in the fields um, at the age of six. In the summer, uh, right around August, we'd head down to southern Maine and we raked blueberries, which was good because that's what we used to pay off our um, winter bills. That would be the gas bill, electric bill, things like that. Right, right. And then, of course, we get enough money so we could have school clothes, which made it kind of cool. And then in September... We'd go to school, you know, early September. And what kind of made it unique is we only went to school for about three weeks and then it stopped. Then we went on, we had a fall break is what they called it. And that fall break was when we um, we all went out to harvest the taters. So I grew up in tater right. country, right? Yep, yep. <laughs> and everyone did it. So it was kind of funny because you're in class, you know, doing your thing. And then you're on the potato fields and there's your math teacher who's driving the truck. There's the, you know, your principal who's actually working the digger and stuff like that. So it kind of made it interesting that way. Uh, Growing up there, my dad was a migrant farm worker. And so we had this one piece of furniture that was that studio or that stereo council cabinet. Yeah. You know, and the The classic. Oh, yes. (laughs) You could build a house on that thing. It's just amazing. (laughs) We had not the deluxe one because we had ours had just the record player in it 
And um, that had uh, 78, 33, and 45s. But it was massive. This thing was, what, six feet long and about three feet wide. And as kids, we loved it because we could jump on it, you know, (laughs) (laughs) and it actually was the only thing that kind of lasted around. (laughs) We had a TV, per se, and it was a a small, like, 13-inch black and white TV, one of the portable ones. Right, right. And that's what we lived in, what we called the old house at that time. In the evenings, we would play the radio sometimes because this one had a radio too. So it wasn't the deluxe one. The deluxe one had an eight-track player. And the high-end ones had cassette. So what we ended up doing is uh, we sit around and my mom loved country music. So we listened to country music. And this is why I I moved. We had a Hank Snow. And Hank Snow is the pride and joy of anyone from Nova Scotia, like Ann Murray. Right. You know, it's it's like, no, you you know, you don't say anything. Again, they're almost uh, destined for sainthood, you could say. So what ended up happening is um, in listening to it, there was a song that he had on and it was called I've Been Everywhere. And as a kid, you tried to repeat all those things that he was saying because the song is pretty fast. If you haven't listened to it, give it a listen to because it starts off kind of a normal pace, but as each around goes around it speeds up it speeds up it speeds up you know i was sitting there and i'm going hmm where are those areas and that's what started my quest i guess you could say my wonder lust mm-hmm. where i was going to wander around and kind of see these areas that hank snow was talking about and so what ended up happening is i just kind of went around and at a young age i decided i wanted to see all 50 states and all 13 provinces and territories right so i'm almost there I got three states left. Yeah. And about, probably about that four or so promises left. Last move was up from California and moved from California to Vancouver. And the partner I was with, my partner at that time, you know, I made her promise. It was like, hey, I'll help you get your PhD. And once you get it, then I get to do my own thing. Right, right. And, and so once you get her PhD, then I go, okay, I amended it a little bit. And I said, once you get as a landed immigrant, then I get to do my own thing. And this all boils back to how I got here because it's kind of a multifaceted thing. One was kind of interesting was that uh, for years growing up, um, I got into banking. What was unique growing up in the small town that I did is that um, we got paid as we were working. You know, we were farmhands and it was minimum wage. I think at that time it was like, I think it's like three, two seventy five, three dollars an hour or so, something oh. like that. And of course, banks close on Saturday, Sunday. But if you're working, you know, if you got to buy groceries, you know, you need to go to the bank. Then we never had a bank account. So what ended up happening is went down, down to the bank. And it's First National Bank. I still remember the name. Of the, it was the only bank in town. So we're at First National Bank and we went in to cash our check. So it's our family. I mean, I was a kid, you know, we're doing things. And um, the bank manager came out and asked us to leave. Oh. And it was like, uh, and my dad, of course, things were a little different than they are today. But what happened is my dad was talking to this and I could hear him. It's like, you know, no, we need to cash these checks. Well, you can't be in here. You just can't be in here. And so what they did is um, they instructed us to go around to the drive-through. And that's where we had to do our banking. We had to go outside of the bank and we had to go to the drive-through. So we had to wait in traffic. <laughs> And here's our little family, you know, we're almost like little ducks, <laughs> you know, just kind of walking along until we could get to the drive-thru. And then, of course, back then, they didn't ask for identification. You know, just had to sign the check in front of them. You couldn't right, sign it right. ahead of time. And it wasn't all that lot of money, but, you know, and then I found out later on, they didn't want us because we were dirty. 
hmm. we were making their bank dirty. Well, that's what they I heard. That's, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's what they say. And you still see that going on oh, yeah. in modern day society too. I'm actually really surprised that they had drive through not ATMs, obviously, but drive-through banking yep. back then. Yeah, window. Yep. I thought that was a relatively new thing. Well, it, it wasn't for us because farmers, right? So a lot of farmers, you know, they were all like us dirty. <laughs> so, <laughs> I think that's what they did. And I've always felt like, it's like, you know, if I ever get into a position where I could help someone, I would never, 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 never make them feel less than. Because I did. That's what I felt. I felt like a, a second-class citizen. Right. Even though... I was born in that country, and that's what my people, that was our traditional territory. Yeah. So I'm in my traditional territory, and I'm feeling like a second-class citizen. So I kind of left that area because of, uh, you know, I just couldn't stand it there anymore. Right. It was actually because of uh, my best friend, unfortunately. Uh, I had this best friend, uh, Lee Lee Thomas is his name. Didn't find out later on until his actually his first name was Carl. So that oh, was lying to me the whole time, you know. <laughs> Leland was his middle name, so that's when he went by. And uh, we were best friends because we were two days apart. Okay. Yeah. yeah. He was born on the 25th of September. I was born on the 27th of September. Yeah. <laughs> so we grew up and, you know, we kind of hung out. It surprised a lot of people because he was like upper middle class and I was like lower, lower class. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. And, and um, but we hung out, we got along great, and a lot of people actually thought that we were a couple. Oh, okay. And, and it was like, and it was kind of interesting to see, especially in a small little town. And it's like, no, it's not at all. We just got along. And the whole time that we knew each other, we only got into one fight the whole time. Most relationships that, <laughs> wow. Yeah. What ended up happening is I dropped out of school when I was in ninth grade mm-hmm. because I was too smart for school. Yeah. And there's all kinds oh, yeah, of stuff of course, to do, yeah. you know? So he kept in school, but then I found out, hey, um, working's not all those cracked up to be. So I actually went back to school, and uh, he came up. And we were, uh, what, 18, 19. And this was right around Christmas. And what ended up happening is he came up, and they had two other friends. One of our other friends, his name was Tony, and he was the Pac-Man person. He liked yeah. Pac-Man. And the other guy, his name was Rick. And Rick, he went by the, we called him God. Oh, yes. wow. It wasn't because he was supernatural or anything, that, but he said he could do anything. So, okay, yeah. yeah. So he would stand beside a car and he goes, you know, I can jump over the hood and land on the other side of that. And we're going like, okay, if that's where it really makes you happy, then do it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so he would come up with all these things and we just, it's like, okay, God, you know, and I knew them, but we were a group, but Lee and I were like the best friends. So what ended up happening is... um they both joined the military because that's the kind of thing that we did back in the day. Right. You know, that's how yeah. you get out of the area, right? Join the military. They were back on leave and it was Christmas time. All of us are 19. Uh, Lee pulled up and he goes, hey, Robert, you know, you want to come out? And I go, no, I'm sorry, Lee. You know, believe it or not, I get a study for a test. And he goes, see, you shouldn't have dropped out of school. That's what happens. And I go, well, let me study for this test. And then, you know, I'll catch up with you guys in a couple of days because, you know, we're all getting back together. So he went off and didn't think any of it. And then I got a phone call about two in the morning Mm -hmm. and it was Lee's brother. And Lee's brother said, you know, it's like, Robert, he goes, Lee's dead. Oh. Yeah. And it's like, don't even tease me like that. Don't even, he goes, no, it's, 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 and he told me all the details. So what ended up happening is um, I didn't have a car. So I walked to the crash site that morning. It was like, I got there right around four in the morning. And I remember in my mind, in my own heart, in my soul, I cursed god or the creator because right. it's like i'm going why him why you know and i couldn't find any details right. i found out the details later on what happened was 
he was driving. He had a Z28. As you can tell, I'm from the States because I still say, <laughs> I didn't say Z28. You know, it was a fast car, 19. And so yeah. he got two speeding tickets in like three weeks. <laughs> oh. Oh. So uh, he uh, got stopped and, and the other two guys were with him. And um, the officer looked in there, you know, he got stopped for speeding, looks in, sure enough. And he goes, he sees a bottle of booze in there. Right, right. And let's look back at it back in this, back in the early 80s. It wasn't the issue like it is today. I guess you could say it was accepted. Yeah. You know, it was yeah, it was a exactly. normal thing. Yeah. So um, it's Christmas time. Two of them are military leave. So the cop, I actually talked with him and he, I became friends with him later on. He said, he goes, I made a judgment call. And he goes, I had him dump out the booze. So they dumped it out. Hey, he did a field side, a uh, field uh, sobriety test. Yeah. Yeah. You know, touch your nose, you know, walk the line, leave past all these things. So he goes, okay. He goes, sorry, I got to give you the speeding ticket. And with that speeding ticket, he would have had to park his car. Um, it's an automatic suspension for like six weeks. Right, you right. Know? What happened? And so he let him go. And then um, Lee took off with the two buddies. He was dropping him off. And um, unfortunately, he went around a corner going too fast. And he pulled the car. You know how sometimes you're driving down the road and your car will, you drive off onto the shoulder a little bit and it'll kind of grab it. Yeah, yeah. That's what happened. And then when he pulled it back, the car went sideways because at that, he was doing about 200 kilometers an hour. Wow. Like that, you know. That's insane. It, well, it was a fast car, right? 19, you're, you know, invincible, right? Yep. Especially when you have a little bit of that booze in you <laughs> yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so what ended up happening was um, he skidded sideways and the car impacted this massive oak tree. Didn't even knock the bark off of it. And the course car actually disintegrated is what they said in the news. And so in one evening in... I lost three of my friends. So I had a small group of friends and then I had no friends. Yeah. And um, because of that, it just dug at me and dug at me. I couldn't be in that area anymore because here was my best friend. He was gone. I later came to, I guess, amends to that regarding to me and my belief and also the law enforcement officer. You know, he was just doing his job. He was actually trying to be a nice guy. Right. Yeah, exactly. And I found out later on it tore him up, you know, because he felt that he was the one that was and that's the thing you kind of look back at it and say you know was is my fault your fault whose fault hindsight is yep. always 2020 yep. right so what i did is one day i just said okay i just went out on the road and i stuck my thumb out and at that time i was hitchhiking all over the place of course it was different than this right today. You, you, yeah you didn't really have to worry about uh, <laughs> worry about too much more yeah. than back then so mm-hmm. so um i end up hitchhiking and then uh, i stopped at this one the last ride dropped me off and he goes hey i'm going to this bar and see in massachusetts at that time you could go into the bar at 19 mm. and so i go into the bar and and kind of hanging out it's like what's going on i'm kind of shocked and kind of trying to figure myself out and uh, <laughs> So there was a, another guy who's First Nations guy, and he goes, hey, hey, how are you doing? Oh, you're Indian, I'm Indian, you're yeah, rah. And then, <laughs> so um, he goes, you need to get a place to stay? I go, no. He goes, hey, you can crash out on my couch. He goes, and then you can be on your way. He goes, I got to go to work next morning. So I go, okay. So I crash out on the couch, and then he wakes me up. He goes, hey, got to go, got to go. I go, okay, okay, you know. So, so I asked him where he lived and what his name was, right, or where he worked. And he told me, and I go, okay, Marvin was his name. Yep. And uh he goes, you got to get out of here, though. I go, okay. So I actually left before he did. And then this was before Google and everything else. So I had to find out where he worked because when I did, 
is I went where his work was and I used him as a reference and I got a job. Oh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> they hired me and I started working there. And so what was really funny is that while I was working there, I was doing my thing. What it was, was there was a coworker of mine and I always felt that he was always kind of both of us were kind of always competing with each other. Right, right. And it's like, okay, you did this much, I did this much, you did, you know, and we were close. So, of course, you know, uh, time for raises came around, and we go, you know, do you want a raise? You know, did you get a raise? He goes, yeah, yeah. He goes, how much did you get? He, I go, I got a nickel. <laughs> he goes, well, I got a quarter. Oh. And it's like, I'm going, wait a minute here. Why did this? So, this wasn't right. So, I went up to the foreman and it's like, hey, why did I get a nickel and he gets a quarter? We both do the same amount of work. He goes, well, He's going to college. And I go, well, huh. and I go, he's no smarter than me. You know, he goes, but you don't have a college degree. You're not going to college. He goes, if I remember, you didn't even graduate high school. I go, oh. So, <laughs> Challenge so, on? Yeah. So, <laughs> so I looked at it. And I go, okay, fine, fine. So <laughs> that evening I looked in the newspaper and they had these adult education classes. And I'm looking through them and it's like, okay, they have a phone number. And this was... In Massachusetts, so it was in, in uh, Boston, Boston Public Library in the basement. And they call the number and they go, hey, what do I need? And they go, bring two number two pencils and 20 bucks. Hmm. I'm like, okay. So I go there, they, you know, because it's night classes. So I figured, you know, I can get the school thing done. So I go there and I show up and they said name. And they put it down and they took my $20. And they go, okay, go in the room. And wait till we come in there. So I go in the classroom and there's a bunch of other students there and there's just desk and there's nothing there. <laughs> and then all of a sudden he, he comes out and he passes out these envelopes and he goes, okay, uh, now you can begin your test. And I'm going, huh? okay. So I, you know, they had the little seal. So I broke the little seal and it was a test and then it has that, uh, that key where you fill in the little dots oh, and like stuff the, like that. Fill in the blank or yeah. like the, the answer key. Like the, the, uh, you have to use the pencil and fill in the dot all yeah. the way. Mm -hmm. and yeah. Like, okay, so I thought it was like an assessment test, which is right. fair. It's like, hey, you know, I don't have to take any more classes than I need to, right? Exactly. I did the test, and then I did the test second time because that's why I always test it. I always did everything I know first, and then I go back and I leave the ones that are questionable and I think of a little bit more. And, and so I finished that part, and I'm looking up, and I go, there's a lot of time left, and there's a lot of blank spots. Oh. And I knew that no answer is the worst thing you could do right you right. know so i'm looking at this thing and um i guess it was because of my mom growing up you know doing beadwork i always saw patterns and things so i that's what i did i didn't know that so i started making patterns in the little dot field yep. you know so, <laughs> so okay the line's going left okay the line's going right. and there's a lot of space <laughs> and it's gonna, draw a whole picture yeah and so <laughs> and so i'm making all these patterns and stuff like that and then i kept doing that until they said time was up so i went out and handed it to them and the the uh lady that was there she reached down and she had that one of those answer templates kind of mm -hmm. thing slapped it down on top of my okay and then she reached in she grabbed this other piece of paper and bring up the little stamp pad and, and stamped it and then she handed it to me and she, I go, what's this? She goes, it's your diploma. Wow. <laughs> and I go, oh, okay. So I got Fast the, track. Yeah. So <laughs> I didn't realize this was a test. Like uh, I think Stogwood is called here. Yeah. 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 You could test for it. I, I just. That's perfect. Yeah. So, so I, I'm shocked now. So I have to go back to work. I'm looking at this piece of paper and I get on the bus. <laughs> and then the guy goes, what do you got there? And the bus driver, I go, it's my diploma. I just graduated. He goes, oh. He goes, there's a college just right on my route. I'll drop you off there. Oh, nice. 
<laughs> so stars are aligning. You get off on this. On, he takes me to the bus stop and dropped me off. And he goes, "Ask for the registrar." Okay, so I go in there and I go. I'm still dumbfounded. And so I go, "Is a registrar's office here?" Yeah. Okay. And I go in there and they go, "What do you got there?" I go, "It's my diploma. I just graduated." They go, "Good. We can sign you up for some classes." Oh, <laughs> I'm, great! And bang, I am enrolled in college all of a sudden. Wow. Which classes did you take? <laughs> you know, I had to take some general classes because even though I had passed the test with the patterns, I still had to take some, you know, like, okay, um, I guess to bring me up to speed to the rest of the class. Right, right. So I had some English and some math and things like that. But at that time, you know, business was the big thing. Mm-hmm. And so I decided to get in, you know, do a business class. But what I did do is, um, you know, I'm, I'm in my business class. And of course, one of them is a history class. Right, right. So you get these core requirements. So I'm in this core requirement class. So I sit down, you know, say, like, okay, I'm in college. What do we do? <laughs> and uh, the instructor comes in there and, and he goes, you're here for American history class. And we're here to tell you how we took the land back from the savages. Oh, well, that's the <laughs> story of your life right yes, there, right? Yeah. So because of that, <laughs> my, my head just exploded. I jumped right up and I go, oh, what's going on? And you don't know what you're talking about. And then he goes, well, you don't have to be in my class. Leave. So I did. So, But you still have to take a history class. Right. have to. Right. And when I was in history classes, I'm like, oh, what do I do? So I went back and talked to them. And they said, hey, you can take a, at this, because this college I was going to was like a religious one. Mm-hmm. So they go, take a Bible course. And I go, okay. So and they go, which one do you want to take? I don't know. They go, here's this one. Here, take this one. And it was Comparative American Religions. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And I go, okay. That actually sounds really interesting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so what ended up happening is, so I sit in that class and then the, the instructor said, okay, this class, I'm not here to teach you. You have to learn on your own. Mm-hmm. He go, and we all kind of look puzzled. And he goes, what we're going to do is you're going to go out and you're going to visit a different religion every week. And then you're going to write a one-page summary. Oh, good, because I'm horrible. (laughs) Of your experience. Then we're going to come back, and then we're going to break into groups, and we're going to discuss the different ones. Like, okay. So it was really unique because I was able to go to different, I guess, faiths. And I could hear what they said about faiths as opposed to, you know, what you hear on TV or whatever it may be. And it really opened my eyes on why some people believe what they believe and why they do what they do. Right, right. And because of that, I guess you could say um, there was a better understanding because then I can understand where that person was coming from, you know, and that's always been a fascination for me. So one of the fascinating things about this comparative religion class was that um, there was, I went into a synagogue. Now, I grew up Roman Catholic. Okay. You know, I say I grew up Roman Catholic because that was my mom's thing and we were kind of... <laughs> it's like she, she grabbed you by the ear. Yep, it's like, yep. Yep. It's like <laughs> you're going to be doing this. It's like, oh, okay. Um, in a synagogue, and I all I knew was Roman Catholic. Big building, kind of marble or stone walls, you know, a pulpit up there, and then they have the, the bread and the water and the wine and all that stuff. Singing, you know, sit up, sit down, kneel, sit up, sit down. <laughs> yep. And very structured. No mm-hmm. one talks. It's what you see, what's in front of you. You absorb what comes down. And this is what that class was continuous, kind of outlining for me. It's like, okay, if there's a sermon, where is it being said? Is it up high? Is it down low? 
is it even is it parallel because that's what a highlight of that's what the focus of that interesting religion is you know it's like okay when they say the sermon they it's like sermon on the mound kind of thing they're you know, they're up high and they say it down so you can see it if they get down level with you then they're even with you kind of thing huh so i'm in the synagogue and they're up there and they read the torah and they kind of sing it and i'm looking beside me and there's kids playing and they're goofing off and they're pulling each other's ears and <laughs> stuff like that and then when they went to do a prayer you know normally you know because all i knew was catholic right 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 is that we kneeled and we faced forward right and then said the prayer so when they did it everyone stood up and then even those that were in the podium or in the stage looking at us they turned around and faced the back wall hmm. and i'm going okay why is that and so then what i found out later on is that the all the jewish synagogues are facing israel Oh, that's interesting. So the no matter where the synagogue was, the back wall faces Israel. So every single one, so they all face would face the back wall to pray towards Israel. Yep, because that's their founding. You know, that's what they do. And it was kind of interesting to see those things, and it actually broke down those biases I had in me because it's like I'm going, why are these kids playing in here? You're not supposed to be doing that because that's all I knew, right? Right. But then I come to find out, it's like no. This is a family thing. For them, their form of worship was part of the family, not just a building you went into for an hour on one day and then came out. Right, right. right. You know, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so that kind of spurred my curiosity when it came to uh, religion. So I actually started, I had a thirst for it. So I started taking these different classes <laughs> until I actually ended up when it came to, oh, Robert, it's time for you to graduate. You kind of got too many here, you know? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and I go, do we? They go, yeah. And um, so what I found out is I graduated with a bachelor's in business administration, uh -huh. but I minored in theology. Oh, wow. They go, well, what are you going to do? <laughs> and I told everyone I was going to be a TV evangelist. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. You know, and well, you're, you're halfway there. Yeah. So, I, you know, with a business degree, you can, it's basically, it allows the business, businesses to know, it's like, hey, I can ask questions. That's what it does. And I can actually show up on a regular basis. So right. I applied at a bank, got into banking, and I found out I excelled in it because I remember that experience I had as a kid. Right. When I was outside the bank, I go, I will treat everyone the same no matter what, which was really um, got my bosses kind of upset with me several uh -huh. times yeah. because they had their high-end clients and right. their high-end clients were used to the special privilege, which is okay. Hey, you know, if that's the banking protocol, then that's... So what I did though, what they were upset with me about is that I gave that same level of customer service to everyone i met right right and it just drove them crazy huh. they go why are you spending those time they're just cashing a check i go that's okay you know they, they like to feel special too yeah. right yeah. yeah yeah and it drove them nuts because i would win these customer service awards left and right and center and all this stuff because i didn't care it's like hey i did not want to be treated the way i was treated right and then of course one of the punishments they do is they make you work sunday half a day on oh you know it's like oh okay and so what I did is I had all my customer service reps because it was a fairly large branch I worked at. We had mm -hmm. on uh, Thursday, given Thursday, we had about 800 transactions that we wow. did um, during lunch hour. Wow, just during the lunch hour? Yeah, yeah. and <laughs> because there was three major businesses and they all paid that same day. And everyone hated this bank. <laughs> it had America in its name. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, everyone hated it, but you know they, they actually changed how they were banking because of what I was doing. And, and because of what I was doing is I was able to change how the tellers were. 
because the customer service reps, they would, they get that same attitude. You know, they learn from the management yeah. on how they treat people. You know, I told them, I go, no, I go, you treat everyone with a smile and they come up. You ask them how they're doing. And then I said, they go, well, we're kind of bored here. I go, I'll tell you what, I will give you internet access, but you guys have to acknowledge everyone that comes in the door. And that was actually for safety reasons, because if everyone coming there who's being bad, a gun or whatever it yeah. is, you know, you wanna, yeah, you you know at least see, identify them. Yeah, exactly. And it was hilarious because at that time at the queue, we would have at lunchtime, any given time, we have 40, 50 people in line to do their banking. Wow. Yeah. And then, you it's know, a busy bank. Well, it, and it was funny because one of the first things I did when I was in the bank is I called a teller meeting. And so, and I made them come in. I go, I paid them. I go, okay, you got to come in a half hour early. Oh, well, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so they came in. And what I did is I had them come in into the lobby. I go, okay, tell you what. Okay, everyone, you get out in the lobby and line up in the queue because it was kind of like that, that maze that you have to go to, like yeah, if you're in yeah. an airport. And I go, okay, you guys get in that queue. No one can talk to each other. No one can look at their watches. I go, I'll be right there. And so um, what they're doing is they're all in the queue, and I actually put a timer on. And I actually was ruffling papers like I was missing something. Yeah, yeah. And then I walked out there, and I go, okay. And it was only 30 seconds. I go, okay, how long were you guys waiting? I was getting from three to five minutes. Oh, wow. That's how they thought they were waiting. I go, that's what our customers feel. And they go, oh. That's an excellent exercise. Yeah. yeah. And because of that, then they actually saw it from the customer because a lot of them didn't do any banking before. They were all young people going to college or whatever and some older right. people who did it for their life. But they were never on that side because they did all their banking on our side. So if I had to do any banking, I just hand it off to a teller and they would just, you know, right, right, right work. exactly. This was the first time they were actually out in the lobby for a lot of them. So, and then I had to do things in order to get people ready because a lot of times what was happening in banking is the person wasn't ready when they walked up. Right. Yeah. So, you know, say, hey, we don't talk to each other in line. Oh, and then I don't tell everyone what I'm doing. And then, <laughs> so then I go up to the banker and okay, okay. If I'm a lady, okay, I got my purse. Okay. But I put my purse up. Okay. I open my purse. Okay. In the purse, I have my letter that has had the envelope and then the envelope is where I have the check. And then, oh, and then I have my wallet, which I have to get my ID out of. And, <laughs> and then I have oh, to no, get my no. check. And well, you know, so, so what I ended up doing is I contacted our corporate office and I asked them if they have, if we had any, um, uh, what do you call that? Um, schwack. Right, yeah. You know, little keychains, yeah. whistles, you know, USB drives, things like that. Bingo short, and they sent it to me. And I made sure every one of the stations had some form of candy. I was going through, at that time, a 20-pound box of lollipops a week. Wow. <laughs> That's a lot of candy. Well, we had the candy That's up there. Like because you know, because it's candy. And I told people, you know, the tellers, like, why do we have this? I go, listen. There's some things that you have to go to DMV, uh, Department of Motor Vehicles. You have to go to the post office if you're going to mail something, and you have to come to the bank. Mm -hmm. So if they're going to have to do these things, let's make it pleasant, pleasant for them. <laughs> pleasant. <laughs> New word. So, yeah. So what ended up happening is then I had to get everyone ready. So I would stand in the front of the in the queue, and I go, "Okay, everyone." How many people have an account with us? They'd raise their hands. I go, okay, if you have an account with us, then bring out your bank card, show it to me. Okay, and then they showed it to me. And I go, okay, if the first person that tells me or shows me they have the, because it's usually like a nine, nine digit or 14 digit number, mm -hmm. 
if the fourth digit is a zero, put your hand up. It became a game. Yeah. And then um, then the other people, oh, okay, um, oh, people who don't have an account with us, put your hand up. Okay. Do you have a former ID with you? Okay. Uh, okay. Person who was born in January, put your hand, you know, things like that. Because I had to get them distracted of where they were. Right. And then at other times, I would just stand at the queue at the top. I go, you want to make a bet? They go, sure. I go, okay. Tell you what, I bet you a dollar that you'll be up to a customer service or one of my tellers in one minute. Ready? Click. And it had a timer there because I did. I had 13 people that was working for me and I could get every minute I could have another person standing up. Wow. You know, some nice targets there. (laughs) Yeah. And and that's what you just did that because I just wanted to treat people as they were, but that's what I did in banking. What was really interested in banking, and this is all getting back to, believe it or not, of why I'm here, <laughs> is that I'm doing this. And of course, you know, you look at me on First Nations, I have pierced, you know, um, at that time I wore a suit, tie, dress shoes, but I had long hair in a braid. I was always presentable, professional. Right, right. And um, always I would bump into someone from First Nations who was, or Native American in the States, and they would say a phrase that always clicked. They would come approach me. Oh, yeah, I'm doing this. I see you're doing that, blah, blah, blah. And then they would say, you know, someone's got to tell my story. That mm-hmm. phrase would come out. So I thanked them for the day, and they just kind of went on. But this kept reoccurring, that phrase, someone's going to tell my story. And after about 18 years, I figured that message was for me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so I thought hard about it because I had a good job. You know, I had a real good job. People were happy with me. Workers were happy with me. It was all good. And I made that decision to actually give it all up and to go back to school. This was when I was in Canada. I was in Vancouver. So I gave it all up and I went into uh, television. Right. Yeah. Right. At BCIT. Yeah, it went to BCIT because that's where you go. If you want to go to television, you go to BCIT. (laughs) Or or (laughs) Or radio. radio, Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I'm there. It was kind of funny because at first few classes, I'm sitting there and um, I'm looking around. Yeah, I found out later on that my truck was older than a lot of my classmates. <laughs> <laughs> and they asked, what are you going to do? And I hear them, oh, I want to be a director. Oh, I want to do this. I want to do that. And they asked me what you want to do. And I go, well, I just want to tell people stories. Right. And they thought that was kind of weird. Hmm. Well, what I ended up doing was uh, <laughs> a couple things at BCIT that was kind of unique and while I was there, I was I got hooked in with the Aboriginal services that, that were there. Mm-hmm. And they had an elder come by, and he was out of Greenland. This elder was um, had a unique message because he was talking about how his village was actually on a glacier and that they could see a river in the glacier. Wow. And for them, that was like the end of the world kind of thing. That's a sign for the end of the world. And so... Um, I was talking with Aboriginal services and they go, well, you know, we have this guy for one day and we can only have students talking 10 minutes at a time. So I go, hmm, well, let's see what I can do. (laughs) What ended up happening is I talked with my instructors. I also talked to faculty and staff. What ended up later on is we actually, it was the first broadcast ever out of BCIT in television. Because oh, radio really? broadcasts all the time. Yeah, they have that um, campus, uh, Evolution 107.9. Yep. Yeah. yeah, and so we had the studios, three massive studios, but we never broadcast because we don't have the capability to do that. But uh, David Griffith, who was uh, that's in one of the instructors, was able to digitize it. So we decided to have, throw it out there. 
It's like, okay, we're going to have this talk. And that became my senior project, lack of a better word. <laughs> wow. We were able to broadcast live this elder's message so he could carry it out. And because of streaming, we were doing it through Adobe. Right, we were able right, to see yeah. where some of them. So I was getting feedback from colleges out of Wisconsin, out of the States, out of Ontario. And, you know, they all loved it. It was just a student project. You know, it's like, hey, let's see if we could do it because no one told me I couldn't. There you go. <laughs> you know. And so because of that, I kind of caught the eye of the dean and they go, Robert, we really would like you to put a proposal together and um, see if you can get more First Nations people involved in media. We don't really see that many because you right, really don't. Right. So I put together this project and it's like, okay, what can we do? And that's when there was a um, an event here in Prince Rupert called a Gathering of Our Voices. Yeah, yeah. Yep. And that was in Prince Rupert in 2009, if I remember correctly. I came up, you know, and it's like, hey, you know, and I was trying to do some um, recruiting for, yeah. for BCI. Hey, yeah. come, do hey, come do this, come do this, come do this. Yeah. And then um, part of that, I was with someone else and he was the brains of the thing. I just got the people to come by. He gave me the paperwork. <laughs> <laughs> and so what he ended up doing was uh, we had to go to uh, CT- CFDK TV. Right. At that time, uh, Steve Pereira, and he still is, he's a yep. TV operations manager. He yep. came down and he goes, give your guys a ride. So we were in Prince Rupert, and so he gave us a ride back, and that's just when the Ulikin were running. Oh, and if anybody hasn't seen that, the fantastic sight, all the eagles, all the different birds that are mm-hmm. out there, the seals, seals like just sea everything. Lions, yeah. yeah. And so what ended up happening is that we'd stop because you could see these, you know, sea lions. And so when every time he stopped, because that's what I did, I'm a camera guy, jump out and I have the camera. Steve, get out the camera. We're both shooting stuff. Then we sat down and he goes, well, you know, maybe we should have a show. We have this little TV show and maybe you come on and talk to us about it. Well, sure. So I sat down <laughs> and I was actually a guest on Open Connection. Oh, really? <laughs> For our listeners that don't know, Robert is actually the host of Open Connection now. So Yeah. yeah. And so uh, <laughs> <laughs> coming full circle. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it was there. But what I didn't realize as we were driving from Prince Rupert to Terrace, which is what, 90 minute drive. Yeah. About that, like yeah. That, that the whole time that Steve Pereira was actually interviewing me. Huh. Because he saw me there. I'm out in the crowds. I'm talking to people. I'm doing this because no one told me I can't do it. Right. And even those that did tell me I can't do it, I did it anyway because I really believed that's in That's you, it. yeah. No, that's, that's Robert in that shot right there. <laughs> so we go back there, and it was only supposed to be for that, and then we flew out that next day. So I go to shake my, Steve's hand and say, okay, we're going to head out. He wouldn't let go of my hand. He goes, Robert, you need to apply for a job here. Like, well, yeah, yeah, you know, because at that time, I actually was planning on going to the Southwest. Right, right. He goes, no, no, Robert, you should do this. I go, yeah, yeah. He goes, no, no. He wouldn't let go of my hand. <laughs> apply right now. <laughs> yeah. He goes, I'm going to send you an email with the link. He goes, apply. Promise me you'll look at it. So I did. So I did. And what the heck, right? I got back and I applied for it. What I didn't realize is that the position wasn't even real. Hmm. Because he didn't have authority to do what he did. But they <laughs> made the position because they saw that I could do things that they couldn't do. Right. And it's basically, it was a demographic that I could get into where I could walk into a First Nations community and they know that I would be respectful, that I'm not there. Because unfortunately, when it comes to television, the only time you see anyone who's First Nations is usually if there's a conflict. Right. Unfortunately. Right. They're, they're usually on the other side. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Yeah. And so and after a while, you know, it's like me being out on the standing out, in the drive-thru it's like after all you know hey you know 
<laughs> you know, I feel a little burned here. I use that same respect that I did when I was in banking and I do that in television now. You know, if someone tells me a story, even if it's not what I believe in, it's what they believe in. And that's what all the whole show is about. I just sit down and I let people talk. You know, it's like, hey, what's going on? And I meet all kinds of interesting people. People, believe it or not, who would never actually talk to me, or I don't believe they would talk to me. <laughs> <laughs> but th that's how I get into television, and that's how I get into terrorists. So now, obviously, television helps you communicate that message that you set upon yourself when you're younger. Where do you see it going in the future? How long do you see yourself staying in the... Because obviously, you've had different jobs. Mm -hmm. How long do you see yourself staying in the television industry? Well, I'm having fun right now. I have a boss that basically says, okay, Robert... Here is two and a half hours of airtime to fill. <laughs> when I first did this, they go, oh, geez. <laughs> because, you know, NBCIT, we're used to commercials, right? Right, exactly. You know, the 15, small productions, yeah. yeah. 15, 30, ooh, music, video, ooh, five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> you know? But to be given a half hour, and he, I'm fortunate enough where they trust me. They trust my judgment on, it's like, hey, that I would do everything Right, I wouldn't actually do something that would put the station to shame or whatever it may be. Right, right. So um, they're letting me do, you know, I produce and host it. And so what kind of makes it interesting is I'm a one-man show, in right. essence. I'll go to a location, set it up, shoot it, come back, edit it, and then produce it and put it out to air. And so that's what I do. They like what I'm doing, and I like what I'm doing. For me, it's fun right now. Right, exactly. It doesn't feel like work, yeah. right? And that's super important, especially for when, you know, if you're looking at it as a career, you don't want to feel like you're working because you got to do what you love, right? Well, yeah. And what's kind of funny is people ask me, and it's like, me, you know, I grew up as a farmer. We got up early, went to bed early, you know, here early messes me up because, you know, it's lighter later. <laughs> but I get up at 530. And when I wake up at 530, I, first thought is in my head is like, can I go into work right now? Hmm. And I actually fight myself. I actually delay myself for an hour. And finally, I just burst. It's like, sorry, I got to get ready. It's <laughs> tough for work. Yay. Yeah. And uh, because I do that every morning, I'm in the job where it's not a job. Right. And I go in and it's like, I fight myself not to go into work early. And it's like, I'm the luckiest guy there is. <laughs> no, that's fantastic. Mm -hmm. So now with living in the Northwest, mm -hmm. Besides being on TV, mm -hmm. what do you love about the Northwest? Out here, it's fabulous, um, especially here in the Northwest. Uh, earlier, I mentioned I lived, you know, just about in every state and been through every state in the States and also a lot of the provinces in Canada. And second to Santa Fe, New Mexico. This one, the Northwest here reminds me a lot of the high desert in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Okay. Where there it's brown and dry. But there's a lot of different mix of peoples. There's Mexican, there's Pueblo, there's Apache, there's and there's First Nations, and there's um, non-natives, you know, and all mixed in together. Um, here in the Northwest, it's the same thing, except it's wet. Right, right. <laughs> That's really <laughs> the difference of the two. Because up here, you could say it's Canada's best kept secret, mm -hmm. the Northwest here, because, I mean... I remember being when I was living for a while and when I was doing that banking thing in California, I was in Woodland, California, and I'm surrounded by these fields. I mean, these fields are going on and on, you know, damn, they got avocados and lettuce and corn, all things of things growing everywhere. But all the land 
was owned by someone else. Right. And there was no access to the land. If you wanted access to the land, you had to go to the park. And when you had to go to the park, you had to pay a fee. You had to pay a fee to be in nature, which as a, growing up as a farm boy, you know, I just thought that was just you're, strange. Yeah, you're just always in nature, right? So, and up here, it isn't that way. Here, actually, you got to be careful because <laughs> <laughs> you wander too far. You know, yeah. you know, all of a sudden you're going to meet a bear. Or, or up here, let me see, I've I bumped into bears, uh, grizzlies, uh, moose, oh. elk, um, lynx, bobcats, uh, eagles, um, crows. Crows I never know grew so big yes yeah massive yeah. crows no, you know. yeah we have the best crows mm-hmm. um killer whales and sperm whales uh, i remember being on the dock uh speaking to uh lady pam is her name and she was going through a tough time um in luckwell lambs and we're standing there along the dock luckwell lambs and all of a sudden a, a sperm whale is going around right there right off the dock because it was herring there was after the herring aches you know? right and oh yeah like, where else do you get that you know, where else could you go where really the area is untainted, you exactly. know, and you can actually see what it is. Yeah. Yeah. There's been some woods that were cut here and they grew back. It's not, you see some old growth, but you can actually go out into the wilderness, but you got to be careful because you're not top of the food chain around here. Nope. Nope. It's not your wilderness. <laughs> <laughs> it's some other animal's wilderness. Mm-hmm. No, that's excellent. We're going to take a short break here. Um, When we come back, uh, we'll get into a little bit more here. Sounds good. Northwest Neighbor is brought to you by City West. City West is your local internet, TV, and phone provider. And by Phoenix Rising Wellness Center, located in the Kitimat Mall. We're back on Northwest Neighbor. In studio with me, I have Robert Pictou. Um... Ex- broadcaster extraordinaire, show host, <laughs> being around the world, well, being around North America, mm. specifically US and Canada. You're in Canada now, mm. specifically Terrace, working as a television show host for CFTK TV's mm. Open Connection. You have a lot of passions. You based your career basically on a lesson that you learned when you were younger and basically humanizing people mm. and treating people with respect. Now, there's also another really big life event. You have a passion for the missing and murdered women investigation in Canada. That's really important to you, and it strikes home for you. Why is that? One thing that was kind of interesting is when I came up here, I found out about this thing called Highway of Tears. That kind of struck a chord me. I go, why Highway of Tears? And then I didn't realize that, you know, Highway 16, that there's a lot of women have gone missing, native and non-native but women in general, and also uh, men too. And it was like, oh, geez. What really, reason why it struck home with me in 19, I think it was 1994, 93, 94, 94. Yeah, 93, 94, somewhere in there. Can't remember off the top of my head. My sister went missing, 93. She went missing. I, it was a, a story, this happened in Maine. And now my sister married a man who was, I found out later on, was abusive. And... As it is with most relationships where there is domestic violence, only those very, very close to that center know about it. Right. I grew up with domestic violence, and I remember that that time where my uh, I was about five, six years old, and my mom, um, she said, and my dad, this was during spring, during the planting season, mm-hmm. and during that time, my dad, he'd be out in the fields at crack of dawn, he'd come back for lunch for a half hour, go out, come back for supper. And then go out and then would work until dusk. 
And uh, my mom looked at him. She goes, I'm going to fight with dad today. She told me, uh, why she told me? I have no idea. Hmm. I don't. I go, okay. So I'm a little kid, you know, I'm not even in kindergarten, right? It's like, okay, do my thing. We had uh, the farmhouse we were in, it had the screened in porch, uh-huh. you know, so you walked in the side of the building and you walked about halfway across, halfway through the building and then you went through the front door. Right, right. So when that happened, I knew things were going to be bad. So I was outside in the porch playing. Dad came in, he's doing his thing and they had the windows open in the kitchen. You know, he goes, Susie, where's my, that's my mom's name, Susie. Susie, where's my dinner? She goes, make your own dinner <laughs> or lunch. He goes, I don't want to fight with you. So he uh, goes to make some toast. He's going to make himself an egg sandwich. So she goes over and she pops a toast up. He's trying to make the eggs and she's throwing shells in there, <laughs> you know. And my mom was a, a self-admitted alcoholic. For her, this was always a trigger for her. She would need a trigger so she could go out and drink. Right. You know? And this right. was a cycle, unfortunately, that I saw growing up in my whole lifetime. And I, and I was one of those things. It's like you either are a part of it or you, you totally don't do it. Like for me, I don't drink at all. Right. You know, this is right. not my gig. So she's doing that. And he kept saying over and over again, I'm not going to fight you. They're not going to fight with you. So he got a sandwich together and put it there. Now, my mom was tiny. She was like four, eight and a half. Wow. And, but she had these special boots or shoes that she had because she liked driving pickup trucks. Her pickup truck, she actually took a two by four and uh, taped it to the gas pedal <laughs> just so she could reach with the seat all the way forward just so she could reach the, the gas pedal. And um, so she's had these shoes on. She was outside earlier. And then she put her feet up. She got dirt in his meal. Oh, boy. Oh, yeah. And then, we, of course, uh, those that actually grow up around domestic violence knows what happens. And that's that sound that you hear flesh on flesh and your stomach just goes into a ball. And then the fights and the fight. And then you just go, you just go into another place because it's safe. And then the stomping and then the car starting up and tires squealing and leaving. And then I remember hearing my mom. She was there and I could hear, Robert, Robert. And, you know, I was scared. She goes, help me, help me get up. Help me get up. So I go over there, and there's my mom down at the foot of the stairs. She's in a pool of blood, mm. covered. And I'm trying to pick her up, and I couldn't because she kept slipping through my hands because of the blood. And I swore then I would never touch a woman. Never, never, never. Yeah, I've kept to that. But, you know, that would, my sister grew up with that too. Right. And so I'm not saying that, you know, it normalized it, but. It seems to be that cycle of, yeah. you know, it's either you're with it or you're against it. Exactly. I don't think it was a conscious choice on her part or not, but she was in a domestic violent relationship, her husband. So, and that was just some background of so where her mindset was. So she uh, went to a, a bar, you know, hey, she's an adult. She went to a bar with her husband and her brother-in-law, mm-hmm. you know, this early in the morning. Hey, who am I to judge? <laughs> and what ended up happening was um, there was a fight, I guess, that I found out. I This was through the story I learned, I pieced together over the years. Right. I can say it like I was there. This is after reading numerous police reports and seeing the interviews that were with um, all those involved and with a bartender and stuff like that. This is what happened. They were drinking and there was a fight that broke out and there was a $5 bill that was on the table mm-hmm. and she grabbed the five dollars it says i'm leaving she goes out towards the door as she gets near the door of the bar now my sister was mm, i think she was about five five maybe weighed 100 pounds 120 right. pounds 
And her husband, he was a little bit bigger than me. He was about six one, six two, bigger guy. You know, grew up in taters. Yeah, taters. yeah. <laughs> so Those he, high carb diets. Yeah, yeah. And so what ended up happening was, as she got near the door, he actually ran up behind her and he did like that ninja kick and he actually drop kicked her. Wow. Outside, he jumped up and drop kicked her in the back, and of course the door flew open. And she landed on her belly, and then he pounced on her. And she spun around. When that happened, uh, the barkeep said, hey, I'm calling the cops because you can't have that. Started hitting her. I mean, he had her pinned down. You know, his bigger guy, he had her pinned down. And on her arms, his knees were on her arms. And he beat her about the face. Mm. When the the bar tab, you know, bartender said, hey, I'm calling the cops. By that time, Roger came out. And they dragged her to the back of the building. So they couldn't be seen in public. Right. So they dragged her behind the building into the alleyway, threw her to the ground and beat her in the face. He's got her pinned down. You know, he's a big guy. He's laying on her chest or kneeling on her chest with her arms pinned down. He's hitting her about the head. His brother comes in. So he's facing the two brothers face each other on their knees. And then he beats her about the head. And because that's, you know, hey, got to be punished, I guess. I don't know. Finally, the cops show up. And they both take off running. Of course, she's crying and blood and snots and everything else. Right, right. And so the officer asks, you know, hey, you know, who did this? She goes, my husband did. He's the one. That he, she told the story, kicked out of the bar and the whole works. By that time, the brother-in-law shows back up. Yeah, and so is this the guy? No, it wasn't him. And then her husband showed up. And so when he showed up, she switched her story. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, it became the brother-in-law. Who, right. who initiated everything and did everything. Probably out of fear. Yeah, and that's the norm with when it comes to domestic violence. And then the officer pulled her aside and he goes, listen, he goes, I can protect you. If he did it and you identify him as that, we'll give you a, um, like a, where you're secure. Escort kind of thing? No, no, where, or, you know, where they can't come in contact. Oh, with uh, a restraining order. Restraining order, right, yeah. Right. So we'll give you a restraining order. So she said, yeah. So then they took her to the hospital, and he hauled the two way to the police station. They were um, you know, taken before the judge, and things were different uh, then. Um, domestic violence wasn't really a big thing. And what ended up happening is, so they charged the brother-in-law with um, not domestic violence, but you know, public uh, nuisance kind of thing. Right, right. Yeah. And they released him on R&R. And then... Because of the re- domestic violence charge, the husband had to be uh, bailed out. So it took a few hours for them. So once he got bailed out, then um, while that's happening, my sister, meanwhile, is at the hospital. Mm-hmm. And she, you know, they're taking care of her, which everything's happening that's going on. The ambulance came by and there was a person who was shot. And so, of course, the emergency staff is taking care of that. When they came back to go take care of my sister, she was gone. She just, disappeared wow and we looked at it she disappeared about 15 minutes after her husband was released from jail it's the only hospital in the area you know we can only speculate and uh, unfortunately um, those records because that was his wife as a family we weren't allowed access to right right we didn't know any of this all of a sudden like a couple days later i get a call from my brother and goes you know robert virginia's missing oh no where's she i was just talking to her the other day no 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 she's missing so as a family, we all get together and we start combing the area. We got private investigators. We had a friend of ours who actually had dogs, that cadaver dogs, can go and check. And we, I mean, we looked everywhere. 
you know, we did this every spare moment we had as a family. And that she was just disappeared. We could not find her. That was one of the frustrating things. And that, and unfortunately, at that time, it was not a priority because it's an, a native girl gone missing. Right, right. That was that on top of that, you know, in the state of Maine. Things have changed since then, but that didn't help her case at all. No, no. So here we are, and we were kind of like in a catch-22 because, you know, even though our people are Mi'kmaq, so we're registered in Canada. Right. And so in Maine, but we were born in Maine, so we're U.S. citizens. So what happened, anytime we tried to raise anything going on, they would say, well, you're Canadian. You know, you, hmm. you can't say anything here. And then we go to the RCMP and they go, well, you guys were born in the United States. So we're in that loophole. We could not get any traction at all, at all, for years and years and years. You know, and then every year we'd, we'd have, you know, a memorial for my sister who's gone missing. Right. It wasn't until about three years ago, two years, three years ago that um, finally there was some movement on her case. And it was only because of the national inquiry into the murder and missing Jesus women and girls. Right. We were able to get on their radar because of another person. Her name is Nahani Fontaine. Mm-hmm. And she was, I think, special liaison um, for women's issues with the province uh, um, with Manitoba. Okay. And what she did is she actually did a Facebook call out and she got names. She goes, uh, hey, if you're missing a family member, let me know. We're going to have it on Aboriginal Day. And she had this big screen where they have pictures up. Oh, okay. So we said, as a family, we sent her picture in. And then she actually called later on. She talked to me and my sister Agnes. And this was about three years ago. Yeah. And um, they had a ceremony they called called Wiping Away the Tears, mm-hmm. which was really a phenomenal, almost earth-shattering event because it's all people who have a missing member, whatever it may be. It was some of these things that you never think about. As a family, like, for example, I was the strong one. Right, yeah. So I had to be there for everyone else. Okay, when there's a breakdown, someone's crying, someone's losing it, they would call me, you know. But So I I had to take those feelings of my sister who was missing, stuff those down so I could be there for someone else. So in going to wiping away the tears, that actually was one of the first times that it was actually a safe environment where they go, okay, everyone here is going to be healed in their own way, however your healing may be. So what she did was um, they had these, they didn't have, have been to sweat lodges. I've done uh, my own healing journey in that re- aspect. It was one of the first times where I didn't have to be the strong one, that I was in a room with about 125 people who knew exactly how I felt. Right. And that was the healing for me. That completed my, because my healing went to that certain point, and then because of circumstances, when it would be, I couldn't get that last little part done. When I was in that room with 125 different people, then I was able to complete my healing. And um, that really changed things on how I looked at it and allowed me to be a stronger advocate for that. So one thing that's really excellent that um, is I have airtime. Right, exactly, <laughs> yep. You know, because my bosses, you know, I, I cover all kinds of different issues. Whatever issues, I always say, it's people and events in the Northwest. So whoever it may be, whatever it may be. So there was these different people who were talking about what's happened along Highway of Tears. Right. And it's like, okay, just sit down and talk. And they were shocked, you know, because like, hey, just tell me your story. 
what are you looking to do? What do you want to do? You need your time, you know, and we do that. So for me, that's why the highway tears and, and the uh, murder and missing indigenous women and girls are so special to me because of my sister. And uh, because of the national inquiry, and that happened two years ago, um, we were able to, for the first time as a family, we could tell the public about our missing sister. And there was some movement. There has been some movement there, but it's frustrating in regards to it's a because it's an active investigation. Because until I find something, it's always will be right. active. Um, the law enforcement doesn't want to jeopardize it, which I understand. But the frustrating part is that you hear if you hear the same thing over and over again, you're going to doubt it. Mm-hmm. So initially, when my sister went missing, we had there was an officer that usually come by. by the kids and talk and he was sitting there he goes Robert I was actually looking through I was doing this I worked on this for about 10 hours this week or whatever it may be at least I could he goes I can't tell you what's happening I go I don't need to know what's happening I just want to make sure that it's there yeah yeah and that's where one of the frustrations when it comes to you know murdered missing just women and girls is that you hear it's a ongoing investigation but you don't know what's ongoing well if it's true or not right you know that's the thing and unfortunately with the history when it comes to First Nations and the RCMP isn't all that good, you know, so put in there a little doubt, you know, and of course things can unfortunately go the wrong way. Exactly. Like there mm-hmm. should have almost been some kind of way to build the trust first and some kind of process put to place so that, you know, like these families could stay informed of what's going on, even though it may not be a traditional way of doing it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's... Well, even just like, like I said, hey, the officer calls them up, say, hey, I'm, I'm just going to let you know still on my mind i'm working on it you know a simple three-minute phone call exactly you know it could change the world yeah no exactly obviously you have a, a larger family mm-hmm. any kids um i have two i have a son and daughter um my son aaron he looks like the gerber baby yeah the gerber yeah <laughs> <laughs> and you know i kind of looked at him first it's like he got blonde hair you know Sure, am I? You know, <laughs> <laughs> when he comes back to listen to this, how is he going to? Fe- how is he going to feel about you saying that? <laughs> well, you know, you, you can say, "Yeah, that's dad." Um, he's taller than I am. He's like six two. Um, very healthy. Uh, he loves judo. Yeah, loves judo, and a very, very insightful, insensitive human being. If there was a person you could say, you know, if this person's sensitive, it would be him. Yeah. yeah, but you look at him. You know, he's got this big guy, and he's got this beard and stuff like that. It's that thing. Oh, a big guy. Oh, you know, he's mean. No, he isn't actually. <laughs> it's big quite the opposite. Bear. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then there's my daughter, who's five foot nothing. Hmm? She is a female version of me. Yeah. Oh boy. Yeah, and <laughs> and uh, and so you know, all kinds of energy, all kinds of outgoing personality. She's uh, working as a nurse right now, mm-hmm. out of Florida. Oh wow, and that's okay. her gig. You know, in. Uh, valedictorian the whole works you know so i'm proud of them both both of them um, went on to college i was the first member of my tribe actually or nation to graduate with a college degree how does that make you feel it was good because you you know if you grow up especially in in those areas you know as a high school dropout or those around you you know you don't feel you're good enough but then you go wait a minute no it's just one step at a time it's a class okay and it's like yeah it's hard at times but, you know, you get through it and think, okay, I, I accomplished that. Okay, what's on for the next one? And so uh, my, my son graduated with a degree in communications, my daughter um, nursing. Oh, so he's almost following in your footsteps, too. <laughs> Do you see school, um, any more schooling in your future? In mine, no. Not that I see. I've maybe teaching. That would yeah. be kind of fun. 
Um, one thing's great about BCIT is that there's people in industry that teaches you. So right, exactly. they're not teaching you theory. Um, you're not learning someone who's like, okay, I'm having you do this because it's an exercise to do. Just no, you're doing it because this is what they do in industry. Exactly. I remember when I first graduated BC, oh, first I BCF, that first semester, I thought my brain was melting out of my ears. Uh-huh. uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. I know that feeling. Uh-huh. Definitely. But what made it great is that you could go into industry after one semester. Right. You know, it's like, okay, go yeah. over and grab that XLR cable. Okay, coil this up. Take it over here. Okay, grab the camera. You knew all the lingo because that's how they train you. So, who knows? BCIT calls. I may go down. Who knows? Right yep. now, I'm having fun. Exactly. <laughs> there you go. That's the main thing. You're having fun. And you know, BCIT, if you, BCIT would be fun too. Mm-hmm. Oh, definitely. Awesome. Well, thank you for joining me today, Robert. It's fantastic to find out your history. I've known you for a long time. Mm-hmm. Didn't know that history about you, so I'm really happy that we got to uh, chat today. Oh, yeah, and I appreciate the, uh, you know what you're doing is making things available so those who um, want to get their story out or should share exactly. about their stories can. You know, so yeah, exactly. you're doing a fantastic job here too. Oh well, thank you. I, you know, I really look forward to meeting all these different people that are around the Northwest and finding out um, why they're here and what they're doing. Yeah, and hey, then more sponsorship would help too. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Thanks very much, Robert. Sure, no problem at all. Thank you for listening to Northwest Neighbor conversations with people living in Northwest British Columbia. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you or someone you know has an interesting story to tell, we'd love to hear it. Go to our website at northwestneighbor.ca and click be a guest. If you would like to donate to our show, you can do so also at our website and click donate now. Your support is greatly appreciated and helps us continue to bring you these episodes. 